can't wait to get into this. You ready, sir? I'm ready whenever you are. I'm going to go into Zencaster, and I'm going to start recording in Zencaster 2 as well, I should say. Yes, because Zencaster 2 is not available yet. <laughs> <laughs> It's the Tuesday Night Podcast, the podcast about the stories we make while playing the games we love on, around, and under the gaming table. <laughs> That's board gaming I'm talking about. This is episode 103. I'm Alan Gerding. I'm the guy talking to you right now, but you're going to have another person talking to you. If all of the crew of Star Trek died, except for Spock, you would have all Spock. Hey, Ted. Ted Allspark, how you doing? Hello, I am doing great. I am so happy to be here talking to you. So before we go on, let's tell the listeners what they should expect from this episode. I know that you have a full-fledged company. I know you're going to Essen. We're also going to talk about the question of should publishers publish something that is similar to another game that's out there? That's the debate. Also, I know that Phoebe Wilde is an employee of yours, and she was on last episode, so we can get the scoop on if she's doing a good job, and you can talk all the smack about her that you want. Awesome. There's a lot of smack to talk about, too. That might be its own episode, actually. (laughs) Yeah, there's too much to say about that Phoebe Wilde character to keep it in one episode. (laughs) But with that being said, for those that don't know you, could you please give us a quick resume? All right. Well, why don't I talk about everything that's not game related and then that because that's much more interesting at this point. Some people think I'm kind of oddly tall, but I don't know. That's that tends to be shorter people. I'm and I'm not pointing fingers. How tall are you? You are really tall. What's the height? It's six five. That's all. And that's without my shoes. I'm, I'm actually don't even crack six five. So it's it's really I'm at like six four and like three quarters or something. Are you playing with us right now? Just six five. Who the hell says just six five? Well, I don't know. People... I don't know who you think you are, Mister Tall Man. Well, but anyways, I'm interrupting. Yeah. Let's get into this. I'm already getting ready for the debate we're gonna have today. It's gonna be fantastic. <laughs> oh, excellent! I hope you have talking points because I do. I have lots of them. I have just what I have in my mind. Improv, baby. But go on. I keep interrupting. Uh, yeah, so, hey, I am a proud, proud resident of uh, Tennessee, uh, formerly from the, the West Coast, at least for the last 20 plus years. We're on the West Coast. We just moved back to the East Coast and super excited to be here. Absolutely love Tennessee. It's just gorgeous. This time of year especially, it's amazing. Possibly one of the prettiest places in the country. I mean, Ohio's nice, but Tennessee. Amazing. Cleveland, baby. It's the gem of America. Keep on going. It is very pretty there. Go Browns. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the things that that I did is right out of college, I I wanted to be a writer. That was my thing. I have a marketing degree, but I still wanted to be a writer. And I figured, you know what? Maybe I'll get in there through advertising. I'll get in some advertising thing and I'll do copywriting. And that'll be a springboard to being, you know, Stephen King 2 or something. Who knows? And so I always wanted to be a writer. And for whatever reason, I was like uh, all about the technology at the time. And so uh, I had been helping people to go from analog to digital. And this is the very early 90s, super late 80s, very early 90s basically transitioning them from their print and pre-press production systems, which were all analog based in these very, very strange machines to a desktop system. So that's kind of when desktop publishing was in place. 
I was training people on how to do that. I was basically got myself up to speed on Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator. And at the time it was PageMaker and Cork Express were the two desktop publishing products. Knew those things inside out, new Macs, new PCs. Was Mr. Technical Guy with a marketing degree, not a computer or an IS degree. My part-time job at that point, I was a contractor for this company and I went out and I taught people basically how to go from their analog systems to becoming completely digital. And that was a big thing in the early 90s. Doing that because I was kind of this de facto expert in a lot of these and I wanted to write, I said, hmm, maybe I can get in kind of the back door for writing and I started writing books on computer software. So I wrote a book on Adobe Illustrator. My very first book was on Adobe Illustrator and I was fortunate enough to have Pierre Bézier, the guy who came up with Bézier Curves, to write the foreword for my book. That was super exciting, very, very nerdy and geeky. And then I went on to write a bunch of other books and started working at places. I worked at Adobe for a while. I actually worked on Illustrator and the Creative Suite while I was there and a couple other software companies. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you write one of the idiot's guides too, or was it the dummy? Mm-hmm. Both. You wrote both. Yeah, yeah. I've done a complete idiot's guide to Photoshop, Quirk Express, and I think Microsoft Word and maybe PageMaker. It's a lot, of, a lot of books back then. And then I've done the- And it says Ted Allspock right on there on the book. It does, it does. And actually the early ones back when Cliff Clavin was on the cover of the Complete Idiot's Guides. And so it was like a picture of him. Yes. Because they licensed whatever. And then it would be my name. And It's a little known fact there, Normie, that... Exactly. Yeah, the command H in Illustrator does this. Quick question about that. Because they're very formulaic and how they have these windows on the actual book, like these pictures that say, here's a quick tip. Did they tell you ahead of time that we have these and we'd like you to use them? Or did you do that on your own? Do you know what I'm talking about? Or am I talking crazy? Oh, no, no. I know what you're talking about. No, those are all your own stuff. You're basically you're going through and you're pulling out things that are the tips and, and various things that they want pulled out of there. But that's they ask that of the authors. Okay, very cool. Yeah. All right, go on. I just want to know of those side notes. Yeah, those yeah. side windows were you, or if it was like, hey, we want more side windows, keep going. Yeah, no, that's as you're writing, you know, you decide what's kind of not part of the main topic that's still interesting and useful, and then you basically indicate that. And there's there's a million things for the, the bigger publishers that do things like the Dummies books and the Complete Idiots guides, at least in the 90s when that was a thing. There are super big style guides. So, you know, if you use style sheets in Word or anything like that, you know, you've got like, hey, there's heading one and body text and whatever. For these publishers, there are literally hundreds of styles. And you use a style as like the first paragraph of something, the last paragraph of something, the title of something. There are like seven or eight different types of icon styles, you know, for little call outs for things. And just, it was kind of like busy work while you're trying to write. You're having to constantly change styles for things. And of course, then the editors got really mad if you didn't do it right. Yeah, it was a very weird thing that I actually had kind of forgotten about until you just mentioned that. Well, let's get to Bezier Games. Yay! So, Bezier Games, I had actually called my company Bezier. Pierre Bezier, again, the founder of Bezier Curves and a bunch of other stuff. Super nerdy and mathematician hero. <laughs> I asked him, would you mind if I called my company after you? And he said, wow, that's that's a great honor. Just don't sell porn. <laughs> And, you know, this is this is a guy who was at the time, he was probably like 75 or something at the time. And I was like, all right, so you know that there's porn on the internet. Interesting. And at the same time, you don't want me to sell any of it and use your name for it, which I was totally cool with and been able to kind of keep on that. We haven't made any of our games that have are porn-like, although it does limit us, I guess, in some ways. So One Night Ultimate Porn Star is not going to be an option. 
One Night Ultimate Porn. No go. Yeah, I know. One Night Ultimate Pole Dancer, all that stuff is is kind of not really an option for us. Yeah, dang it. Yeah, anyway, I actually designed a few games that were published by other publishers. I didn't really like what they had done with them. I was like, I don't like throwing it over the wall and seeing what you guys come up with. So I started publishing my own things. Starting with Start Player, a kind of collectible card game, which was a deck of cards that to help determine who goes first. Own it. Yeah. I think I own everything of yours. I'm pretty sure I do. Ah, that's nice. Even the beer and pretzels. I even own, what's some of your obscure ones? Name your most obscure one. Let's see if I have it. Probably Rapscallion. I don't have Rapscallion. You got me. Damn it. What's Rapscallion? Rapscallion is actually a very cool game. It's, I still think this is, it's one of those things like nobody knew about me or anything, but it's really cool. The idea is you have a hand of two different types of cards. You have a regular set of playing cards, uh, you know, four suits, et cetera. And then you also also have some bidding cards. What happens is there are four cards in the center or basically one more than the number of players and three of them are face up, one's face down, poker cards, and you're bidding to try to get them because you're trying to form the best possible poker hand by the end of the game. So you use your bidding cards to bid for these things. So everyone puts them face down, you flip it over, whoever has the highest bidding card gets their choice first of those poker cards. And that's cool and you do that. But then what happens halfway through is now you've run out of bidding cards. In order to get more bidding cards, you actually have to use some of those poker cards you've acquired to get these bidding cards. And so now you're like, ah, do I give up this ace that I have, which almost guaranteed me a really high bidding card for the future? Or do I want to go with a low one and just get a crappy bidding card because I want to keep the really good poker cards I've acquired so far? So it's a very nice little mid-game twist. And then basically you're going to have eight cards at the end. And out of those eight cards, you're going to form the best possible five-card poker hand you can. And whoever has the best hand is going to win. Is it still in print or totally out of print? It is totally out of print. There were 2,000 of them made and 1,000 of them were cannibalized. I cannibalized 1,000 of them to come up with another game called Perpetual Motion machine. And I don't have that one either. Oh, yeah, there's two obscure games for you. So those are back in the uh, pre-2010 era. What was the big, would you say you had a big breakthrough game? It's like, all right, we're on the map. Yeah, the game that actually probably did it was Ultimate Werewolf. The very first version of Ultimate Werewolf, what we call, I affectionately renamed the White Box Edition because it was in a white box. I was very creative back seven, eight years ago, too. I don't know if you noticed this. <laughs> the white box edition was all hand-cut cards. It was I basically printed them out on my very nice, almost commercial Xerox printer, cut them by hand, and I sold about 800 copies of the Ultimate Werewolf white box edition. Wow. Was it even shrink-wrapped, or you just leave it bare-bone? No, it was not shrink-wrapped. It was, in fact, the boxes are so flimsy. They are like, uh, you would put, like, a tie for your dad for Father's Day in that sort of box. And even that, your dad would be like, oh, you didn't really go out in the box, did you? You know, it's... uh, Like a department store box for t-shirts and clothing. Exactly. Oh, my God. Goodness. Super, super cheap. Sticker on the front said Ultimate Werewolf. Came with a whole bunch mess of cards and rules and a bunch of stuff. It actually came with card sleeves and little inserts. You would never have to worry about dropping your card if it flipped over to the front so people can see a roll. So there was like a little cover for the front of your card. Yeah, that is cool. Any of those still kicking around or in the Ted Allspock Museum? Uh, I have a few copies here myself, but yeah, I haven't really seen them anywhere. I don't know if it, they're a little unpleasant now that I look at them like, oh, oh, I sold these. Huh? That's, that's a little embarrassing. Uh, but people liked them. So again, 800 copies were made and printed. At, at that point, I was like, okay, this is ridiculous because I'm not great at cutting cards and I'm spending a lot of time doing this. So I made the jump and got it professionally. The first edition professionally produced. I think I got 2000 copies of the first Ultimate Werewolf game that it took less than a year to sell, which is that's fine. I mean, that's a fairly successful game for a board game, you know, uh, starting out. Yeah. 
How hard was manufacturing? Finding a manufacturer is kind of the big jump into the publishing world. Yes. Was there a big trial and tribulation there? You try on a whole bunch of different ones, do interviews, or did you just choose one of the first three that you found? Well, I actually had a bit of a relationship already with Ludofact in Germany because I've been doing Age of Steam expansions, which don't really count as games, but I'd published a whole bunch of those and they were producing the boards for those. And at that point, I think I was introduced to Panda I don't remember how I got introduced to Michael at Panda. Probably at a show. That's where we all meet. Probably, yeah. But they were just brand new, brand, brand new at the time. And they were more than willing to do a very small print run of that game, of Ultimate Werewolf, for me. And since then, we've had a fantastic relationship. And they are not our exclusive production folks, but very close to it. 90 plus percent of our games are done through them. Let's do this like a race. I got a challenge for you, Ted. All right. Let's see how quickly you can go through the chronology of the games that you've made since Ultimate Werewolf. Do you think you can do that? Without looking? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna miss some. You ready for this? Okay. Ultimate Werewolf, Ultimate Werewolf Compact Edition, Perpetual Motion Machine, Beer and Pretzels, Tiebreaker, I think I'm missing some, Mutant Maple, Suburbia, You Suck, <laughs> Castles of Mad King, Ludwig, Colony, and Favor of the Pharaoh, Whistle Stop, uh, New York Slice, Palace of Mad King Ludwig, Werewords. Oh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf, of course, duh. <laughs> and all the other One Night <laughs> games. So I have just jumped around now and gotten out of order entirely. So Yeah, that was not in perfect chronological order at all, I know, as a fan of you and your games. But you also dove into the app space a little bit, haven't you? Oh, yeah, that's uh, something that we got the SGJ recommended for One Night Ultimate Werewolf, and it was primarily due to the use of the app with the game. We just came up with an innovative way to integrate an app into a game. It's beautiful. In fact, I would love you to share all your secrets because I would love to go digital with a lot of game ideas I have, but that's probably for another episode. Obviously, not all of these games are going to Essen. How do you get all these games to a booth at Essen for those that want to know how you go from making one or two games to having a whole lineup like you do and then going to Essen? Let's just imagine that I want to go to Essen. What's the advice that you would give? Definitely. I think any small publisher, and you guys are growing, of course, going to that intermediate stage between small and intermediate, for any small publisher, it's uh, getting as many games over there as possible and getting as big of a booth as possible. Essen, unfortunately, has a really weird way of charging people for booths. If you get a a small booth, it's actually cheapest per square foot or square meter, I guess, because it's Europe. It's the cheapest way to do it is get an individual booth. As soon as you get two booths, it does doesn't cost twice as much. It costs about four times as much. Oh, dang. Yeah. The folks who run Essen, they've done this on purpose to encourage a lot of small publishers to be over there and so that they have a wide variety of stuff. I think that's a really good thing overall. I mean, as a mid-sized publisher now, I'm a little cranky about it because it does cost me a lot more money to get a bigger booth. But it's really nice because as an attendee, you get to see a ton of people who otherwise probably could never afford to you know, display at what is the biggest board game show in the world. For any small publisher, I mean, getting in there, getting a booth in there is relatively inexpensive. It's actually a lot cheaper than Gen Con to get a booth. And you actually get a lot more exposure in terms of people from all over the world are there. And they are there exclusively to buy products. Unlike Gen Con, where a lot of people come there just to play and have fun and experience all the different things that Gen Con has to offer. People go to Essen because they want to buy games. They're not trying out games. They want to buy them. Essen Germany is the biggest of all of the board gaming conventions in the world. 
unser sehr dabei. That is what you are saying, yeah? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Without a German accent, I, I will say absolutely. It is a giant game store. It is the best giant game store in the world. And of course, the most amazing thing about it is a lot of publishers hold back their new games until Essen. And so you're going to see more new games there at one time than any other time. In fact, you're going to see a lot of games there that we'll never see again because they just don't get picked up by their publishers. They just don't catch on or whatever. It's your one and best opportunity to find a lot of games that you will probably never, ever see again, which is pretty amazing. Booth Space, you are giving us advice. Continue, sir. Tell us. Teach us your ways. <laughs> a small booth is great because it's inexpensive. If you can afford it, going to a slightly bigger booth and actually having some room for demo tables is really, really helpful because people love to sit down and try out games at Essen. It is rare to walk by a booth that has tables and to have them empty. If it is, then you feel bad for the publisher because something is very, very wrong that no one is interested in sitting down. But most of the time, even games that you look at and you go, oh, that looks like a roll and move. There's a family of four sitting down playing it, trying it out. <laughs> Shoots and ladders times, kids. It's amazing. You actually see there's a lot of kids that are there, kids and teenagers. And the demographic is much more family oriented over there than it is at Gen Con, where the average age for Gen Con is probably late 30s, maybe male, balding, slightly overweight. In Germany, it's actually it's families. It's it runs the gamut. It's lots of, of women. It's lots of couples. It's just a much wider portion of the population than you see at Gen Con. Having space there to, to be able to play games, people are there with their friends, but they're all there to find a game to buy or games to buy. People walk around, they've got their little shopping bags that they picked up games and they're looking for more games and they sit down at your booth. You have the best possible opportunity to sell a game at that point. And the more booth space you have, the more games you can show to people and the more you're going to possibly sell. And of course, those games get out there and people talk about them and you're going to get some publicity out of that. As a small publisher, getting at least a, a small booth there, but if you can possibly wing it, maybe double the size on that and get some more gaming tables in there. Getting the games over there, that's always a challenge, especially as a small publisher, because it is super expensive to ship stuff over there. You've got to deal with the wonderful European Nevat situation with the value added tax. There is absolutely no value that is added. It is just a tax. They put value added on there to make you feel not as bad about it. But trust me, you still feel bad about it. Whenever you import <laughs> anything in there, it sucks. It costs extra money. You can get around that for the most part. If you take stuff in your suitcase, they're not going to really care too much about that because they don't dive through and go, what are all these games you bring with you? And I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. They're demos. We're giving them away. That's something you can do is stuff your suitcases full of the games you're selling, especially if it's small box games. For us, the ultimate werewolf size game, you can fit a lot of those in a suitcase. I feel like this is where the cocaine world and the gaming world overlap in the Venn diagram, just smuggling over games. And I know. Sorry, what am I doing? I apologize. No, no, it's funny. It's not just there. It's also with the baggies. The, the baggy situation is also one place that gaming and uh, the world of illicit and illegal drugs overlap quite a bit. That's true. It's true. Hey, do you have any baggies? I know. I need some baggies. For what? Seriously. For my dice and meeples, please. <laughs> oh, right. Sure. You're now on a list. You got one of those meeple problems, do you? <laughs> <laughs> what, here's the bigger question, I think, and this is the most important one. When is it time for a small company to go to Essen, and when do you know it's not time yet. Do you just go as soon as you can if you only have one or two games? 
or do you want to wait until you have a little bit more of a lineup and diversity to sell? Well, my opinion, I'm biased because I went there when all I had was HF Steam expansions to sell. So the very first year I went in 2005, I believe it was, I had the Bay Area Age of Steam map, which was something I printed out myself and took like 40, 50 copies with me. John Bohr at Winsome was kind enough to offer me two hours to sell my maps. I told people I'd be there for two hours selling them, and I actually sold all of them in two hours, which was amazing. It got people excited and it made me think, huh, there's something to this publishing thing. If I produce a good product, people will actually pay me for it. That's kind of neat. Basically, I was releasing one small game a year, like Ultimate Werewolf, Rapscallion, Perpetual Motion Machine, whatever. They were very, very small. I would just take that game with me to Essen. I would get a little booth. The first four or five years, we just had a single booth. The big issue, like I said, that I realized later was I was selling a lot less because I really didn't have demo space. You have enough room for maybe one, maybe two demo tables in a small booth at Essen. That tends not to be enough to really generate any kind of buzz about your games because not that many, you don't have enough turnover through people to play. Although Beer and Pretzels got a lot of attention because we set it up on like a, a tall table and we had people stand in the aisle throwing and tossing their coasters at the table. So that actually got a lot of people stopping. They're like, what is this thing? It's so much fun and cool. For the uninitiated, Beer and Pretzels is a dexterity game where you have a rope and you have beer coasters and you're trying to throw them into the rope really quickly explain. Am I way off in that explanation? That is totally right. On each of those little coasters you're tossing, there are points. And if you manage to have a coaster out there that is not covered up at all in any way by uh, anyone else's coaster, you're going to get the points on that. So you know, you're trying to get an area that's empty or get on top of other people's coasters. And that's a lot of fun. Super simple. For a dexterity game. What I'm interpreting then is if the math is right, if we can bring enough games that if we sold all of them, it would justify the plane tickets, the booth space, the hotel, do it as long as the math is right. No, no, I actually will not even say that with the math is right. I think everyone should treat SN and most trade shows as a marketing expense. The fact that you may happen to sell a lot of games and make some of that money back, that's great. But really, they are about marketing. The fact that we've had a booth at Essen for the last 10 plus years is really added to the exposure of our company and our games. I mean, individual sales, sometimes that's great. If we have a hit that year, yeah, it will definitely come out way ahead of what we spent. But that's never the goal for us. It's always about exposure. You know, we get on that BGG list that has Essen games. You get on all the other lists about people are talking about what's at Essen, which raises awareness. Most people don't go to Essen. The people that are there, though, when they buy it, they tend to be the people who are very excited about games. If they do grab a copy of a game and hopefully they'll like it, they'll play it, that gives you additional marketing exposure. So for us, it's really about marketing. And the one cost you didn't factor in there is buying games because you're there and if you run a game company, you probably like board games a lot. Essen <laughs> is like crack. There is another drug reference when it comes to games, and they pump something in the air, just like they do in Vegas, to make you want to stay and buy as many things as possible. And you look at something and go, you know what? I wasn't even considering that, but somehow I must, must have it. You buy a lot of games, and so the expenses just for buying games will outstrip anything you probably make selling them for the most part. Is there any way that you can make sure that the marketing expense is paying back? Or is it just, trust me, this is the way the industry works. This is how it's done. And you will start picking up more customers in Europe and elsewhere because of Essen. It's always hard to measure marketing results unless it's direct marketing. One of the very few things that you can actually measure against. But the constant exposure, you know, when we look to see how many people are aware of our games, the more trade shows we go to, the more people are aware they've heard of our company. They are more likely to give our products a second glance because they've heard of us because we're 
we're at different all these different shows and all these different venues. Yeah. So it is really hard to justify individually. For us, it's been a very long-term strategy. I personally love to go to Essen because of what I mentioned before, all the new games, and I want to be there anyway. Certainly the expense in those first several years did not justify the revenue or even maybe the marketing exposure. But over time, we've been kind of a fixture at Essen. We're an American company that's been there for more than 10 years. We've had a booth there for more than 10 years. We have a pretty large booth now. We have a 60 square meter booth, which is six times as big as a regular booth. Even at the local American cons, it's been amazing to watch you guys just grow and grow and grow. Yeah. Good work, sir. Well, thank you. And that totally makes sense. You don't become popular in high school unless you schmooze at some of the parties. Unless you do something crazy, then maybe people will know you. But that's more infamy than fame. What am I talking about? And it's another drug reference. Good job. <laughs> yes. So, Ted, I've gotten all of the good advice from you that I'm going to get this episode. And that's why I left the debate last. So if we become bitter enemies, <laughs> then... I will have already gotten all your good stuff. (laughs) No, I don't think it'll be like that at all. So you're going to have to refresh my memory. There was the where words and insider quote debate. Yeah, so let's just start with the podcast. I don't know when the podcast was, probably over the summer, because it you know, was a big brouhaha thing going on. And you guys had talked about it very briefly. And I think you particularly made a comment like, you know what, I would never publish a game that's that close to something else. It doesn't seem like the right thing to do. But yeah, you had some reasons for it, which, you know, again, that was your opinion. And I was like, huh, I don't think you've considered all the, the, the different things about this. And so I figured I would talk to you about that. What the reference is, is because earlier this year, we published WearWords. So WearWords came out in June, right before, the week before, the timing is a little suspicious, I have to say, the week before, the good folks at Oink posted something on Twitter, which was basically a, hey, people are asking us if uh, WearWords is related to Insider, and hey, it's not, even though they tried to license it from us, and we said no. Kind of started up a whole thing on the internet where people are like, wow, you know, Ted went and stole their game from them and published it under his own thing. Even that the Oink guys weren't even that direct about saying that. They implied it maybe, but they didn't really know. There were a couple things with that, which is first of all, while the games do have some similar mechanisms, they are very, very different. And if anyone who's played both of them will realize that there's just a different feel to both of them. I think Insider is actually a great game. It does a lot of things really, really well but it's different than the game that I had been developing similar to that before. Absolutely. I will totally back you up on that. I own both. I've played both. They are both different. You know, I was working on a trader-based word game, and it was coming together kind of slowly. I saw Insider. I was like, wow, these guys did this, but they didn't do it the way I wanted to do it. And so, you know what? I thought, I've done this before. I've worked with other companies for Colony, for One Night Ultimate Werewolf. We've worked with designers who published something which was either close to me I was working on, or it was something that just piqued my interest. And I'm like, ah, you know, I think I could make this even better than what they came up with. And so with Insider, I'm like, well, I already have this experience of the stuff I've been working on. This is close to where I was going to go anyway. So I'll reach out to them and see if they're interested in having me do an Americanized version of it. They have this very, very unique style at Oink with these tiny little boxes, and it's really cool. And they make all their games this this really compact size, and they look really nice. And it's just a very nice, clean, minimalist look 
But you know that does come with some limitations. They can only put so many components in a box. You're limited as to what can be there. Right. The price point ends up being a little higher because they kind of force a lot of stuff, and they're they're doing things kind of this little boutique sort of game thing. And unfortunately, that size box is never going to work at retail in the U.S. Hobby stores don't like it because they're things that people slip in their pockets. Big retailers will never take it for the similar reason, but also because the price point's way too high for the perceived value of such a small box. They see a box like that and they go, well, that must be a $5 or $6 game. And think Oink is charging like $22 or $25 or something. And there's no way that's going to work. For the uninitiated, perceived value is really important in the marketplace because what Ted is talking about is the bigger the box, the more willing people are to pay for that game. And that's why you'll find games like The Guild, I think is the biggest perpetrator of this. (laughs) Big ass box, you open it, it's literally just a deck of cards. Continue, sir. Yes. So uh, so I contacted them, and, you know, my intent was, hey, you know, you guys have put this out there already. You've already started here. Maybe I could work with you, and we could make this even more successful by kind of doing what I've done before. If you look at One Night Werewolf and One Night Ultimate Werewolf, big difference in box size. I kind of Americanized it, added more variety, did the app integration, a bunch of other things to it, and it's been very successful. And I thought, well, gee, I can probably do this for Insider as well. And so I contacted them, got an initial response back, and their big question was, are you going to make any changes to this? And I was like, well, absolutely. Because, you know, in my mind, certainly the experience that I had developing what I was working on could apply to this, but that would require actual fundamental gameplay changes. They didn't respond for a long, long time. So eventually I was, I was starting to work on it, thinking that maybe they would respond. They were just thinking about it. And eventually after about a month or two of kind of working on the side, I was like, well, they're just clearly not interested. And I had heard from someone else that was interested also in licensing the game that they will absolutely not let anyone change their mechanics, which I respect. I totally understand and respect that. In a lot of ways, I feel the same way. I don't want people taking our games and modifying it when they do a localized version. So I get that, but they didn't really respond to me. And at the same time, I knew that this other thing I was working on, the trader-based word game, was so compelling that I wasn't going to just give it up because their game was somewhat similar and it came out in a similar time period. The timing is unfortunate, but at the same time, the games were really different, and they are very, very different. I made the decision to basically go back and continue developing the game I was working on, which at its very, very high level, if you like 20 questions in a werewolf together, you could say that applies to insider and it applies to werewords. Once you go that next step down, there is no trader in insider. You've got you're basically a seer in insider that's helping out and people are trying to discover who that seer is and the seer is kind of working with people and kind of against. And then, you know, it's a whole lot of other things that are different fundamentally about the two games. I'm with you. And actually, Ted, if you don't mind, now that you just explained insider, would you mind stepping in the elevator to explain werewords? I would love to. Now, here's the thing. For bonus points, you can do it as a character. Remember, this is our way of punishing anyone for coming on the show, scaring them from ever coming back. You have to explain the soul of the game within a minute. Do you have any impersonations or characters that you would like to try to establish? No, no. Um, In fact, uh, Phoebe mentioned that she's terrible. She did a werewolf thing, which was actually, I thought, pretty awesome. I will not do that, but I will act as the mayor of the village, who is a character in there, and I will explain from his point of view. How would that sound? Are you ready, sir? I'm ready. Elevator going up. 
So I'm the mayor of this amazing village. Unfortunately, we have a werewolf problem. I've done some research and determined that there's a secret word that if everyone in the village, including our wonderful, powerful seer, says it all at one time, it will prevent the werewolves from being able to kill anyone. I've researched this word, and now I'm ready to present it to the village. Unfortunately, the word is so powerful, I've lost the power of speech. And now I've got to somehow communicate this word to the village. So they're now going to be asking me questions, 20 question style. Well, I can respond, not verbally. I can give them little tokens to say yes, no, maybe. Our seer knows the word, but she can't say it outright because if the werewolves find out who she is, they'll kill her, then they'll kill the entire village. The werewolves also know the word. They're not going to say it because as soon as we find out who the werewolves are, we will kill them. So a bunch of people are going to know the word. A lot of people don't. Everyone's trying to figure it out. Once the word is guessed, the werewolves have a chance to identify the seer and they have a chance to win. If the word is not guessed, the villagers all try to figure out who the werewolf is for stopping them. On top of that, the extra added twist is that I might possibly be a werewolf. That's right. The mayor can actually be a werewolf and I can secretly be trying to make the village not be able to answer nice <laughs> in that pitch you mentioned a lot of things that are different than insider because insider you talk there isn't the token so the mayor role is just the mastermind and insider and an insider the mastermind is just saying yes no perhaps they say maybe but in werewords you have tokens and you can run out of tokens, which is another way that the werewolves can win. I'm kind of doing your job for you here. I, I, I hate to yeah. just sell your own debate, but with Insider, there's two special roles. The Mastermind, which is the mayor equivalent, the Mastermind answering questions, and the Insider is the one person who knows. I should be doing an elevator pitch for Insider, I guess. Yeah. Though, uh, all right, fine, here we go. In Insider, you're there, and you're trying to find the word. The word is said by the mastermind, and the Insider knows the word. So the Insider doesn't want to be discovered, but the Insider also doesn't want time to run out. It's a time gain, you see. There's no tokens, yeah. But it's a little uncomfortable, you see, because you want everyone to win, but then you don't want everyone to win. It's very confusing, yeah. And with that, it's 20 questions, but I hit and roll yeah all right so that was my lame so that's, that's very nice and very concise too very short elevator ride nice yeah the most uncomfortable thing about insider is that the insider has two jobs the insider basically the betrayer is on everybody's team because the insider loses if the hidden word is not guessed correctly by someone who isn't the mastermind but the insider doesn't want to be too obvious. Otherwise, people are going to find out that you're the insider. And inevitably, situations like the following happens. Time's about to run out. No one's even close. And eventually, the insider outs themselves. Everyone's asking, is it an animal? Does it breathe? Does it have wings? Time's about to run out. And one player shouts, is it a wallet? Yeah, it's it's a wallet. You got it correct. Now we have to vote on who the insider is. It's uncomfortable at times, and when the game fails, it fails hard. And then that's where Werewoods came in. You know what it reminds me of? There are a series of party games where someone is, I think one of them is there's a clay one, where someone, you know, they're making something out of clay, and you get points. You get the most points if everybody but one person guesses it right. If everybody gets it right, you don't get any points because you're too obvious. But you've got to do that weird in-between thing, and it's, it's kind of non-intuitional to be able to actually do that sort of thing to get it close but not quite and there's a bunch of games that are like word games and other party games that have that thing in place there and they kind of have to do that to make the game work so there's yeah it's a little bit of a, a strange weirdness about the insider there that it takes a little while to get used to 
But you were telling the story, so they didn't get back to you. You went ahead and published Werewords. Yeah. As we've just established, there are definitely some strong differences. In Insider, you've got two roles, basically. Mastermind Insider. How many roles are there for Werewords? Well, basically, in Werewords, there are there are four. Um, you've got you know villagers, the mayor, seer, and a werewolf. There's two extra ones that we threw in there, like bonus roles, but that's that's really the core is are, are those. That really makes all the difference, though, because you have someone working against everybody in Werewords, and the fact that the mayor who's giving the clues could actually be working against someone. Those aspects totally change the way that people play and the way that the game is perceived. It's so hard to communicate that now, in hindsight, it seems easy, but when you're talking about the game initially and kind of promoting it before it's out there and before people have played it, those sorts of things seem like, oh, just little nuance changes. But they really fundamentally change the way the game is played. You nailed it, because the big difference is this. Insider, there was a situation where nobody wins and it's just kind of uncomfortable. Someone always wins in Werewords. It's nice. It's tight. And lots of people can also always lose in Werewords too, which is fun. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people responded. I was one of them, and I talked from my personal taste. I think you also talked about it was just unfortunate on the timing. Yeah. I would definitely argue, and I don't want to sound like your shill. I don't want to sound like I was talking smack behind your back, and now I'm totally changing my tune that I'm in front of you. But the truth of the matter is, at the time of that recording, I had yet to play Werewords. I just did an at-home version that I thought it would be without actually playing it. It was like, oh, let's try Insider. And I remember saying, damn it, it's so much better with werewolves. And I'll tell you this, in my version, I didn't use the tokens because I didn't know about the tokens yet. You can argue this along the lines of the difference of Dominion being the first true deck building game versus Ascension versus Star Realms. They have that same motor mechanic And that's basically the argument that I'm hearing here, too, is that it's different enough to justify its own publication. It's just one of those things. And for me, in all honesty, I'm looking at games and I love word games. I love code names. I love things like that. So it's not it's not that much of a stretch, at least for me. I I wouldn't think anyone would think it's a stretch that we're working on social deduction games all over the place, you know, that that have different mechanics in them. And that we there's a whole bunch that I have that have been shelved. There's some that I'm kind of on and off working on. It, it kind of bugs me, I guess, in that I was really trying in, in my heart to do the right thing because I could have just said, well, whatever, Insider, I'm doing my own thing. But I thought, you know what? They've got something out there already. They were first. I, I'll see if I can work with them and, and do this. And that was really my intent was I would feel bad if I didn't contact them. And that ended up kind of backfiring. They kind of used that against me. And so that was a little irritating because the goal was really to do the right thing uh, by contacting them and saying, hey, are you guys interested in having me work on this? And you know, outline basically a lot of things that were in rare words, such as an app for a lot more words and an actual trader role and some additional roles and things. And uh, they turned around and used it against you saying, this guy reached out to us and wanted to work with us. And when we said no, he went ahead and did it anyways. Here's the thing though, Ted, and I want you to stop feeling the need to defend yourself because number one, you don't have to. Number two, the people that know you know right away your intentions because you have a strong reputation of being one of the nicest people in the industry by far. No one says, Ted Elspach, screw that guy. He's 
the worst. No one says that because I know Sean and I wouldn't be where we are right now without you and the guidance you've provided. You're entirely generous. That aside, I can totally concur. And there was no hesitation in my mind knowing you did try to do the right thing because you released your own tweets. And I remember you shared the email exchange and you came out and said your case much like you did here. And hopefully this is put to rest because I think, again, the only issue here is the timing. And that's why it's contentious. If it was even a little bit later, maybe if it was now coming out, it wouldn't be a problem. And that's not me saying you should have waited or something like that. It's just this creative ripple and it happens in all industries. Uh I think it happens in the movie industry. It happens in music industry. We don't know why. Yeah. I have my own stories. And I also said I wouldn't have done it. And I didn't mean like, I'm not a bad person like Ted. I wouldn't have done it. No, that's more me. If I'm being really honest, it's my own insecurity and seeking a validation because I can't stand when I put a game in front of someone's face that I've worked so hard on, just worked my ass off on, and they say, yeah, it's a lot like this other game. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I get that a lot. That's that's always fun. (laughs) Here's an actual... True story. And the thing is, I have my game design journal. It's so weird how protective I am of it. Like someone's going to steal it and publish all the games that I haven't gotten to publish yet because Sean and I are super slow in this. But I'm looking at my game design journal. Spyfall comes out. Dang it. I have dated in my journal two years before Spyfall came out. I came up with the game Spyfall. But instead of locations where there's one spy trying to figure out where everyone else is at, it was a fact of information. Uh. So it wasn't as clean and tight. Locations is so much better. Now I sound like a douchebag if I say, I thought of Spyfall years before Spyfall came out. It's like, who cares? And that's one of the things that people ragged on me because you're like, well, you didn't tell them you're working on this. And I'm like, you kind of sound like a jerk. Like, oh yeah, I already had that idea and I was doing it different and mine's better and here's why. I didn't want to come across like that because that sounded kind of really nasty. So, uh, ah, yeah, you never know what's going to happen in the future, but uh. Well, that's why I don't want you to have to defend yourself anymore. Do both of these games deserve to exist? Absolutely. So so I just want to let you know, on a somewhat related note, I mean, you can decide if it's related or not, the two games we have that are already in the hopper for 2018, I'm going to just uh, put this out there. It's exclusive for you. Is this like the great land rush? You're staking your claim? This is. This is, this is good stuff. It's uh, World Championship Roulette. Just Roulette by itself. I think there's actually uh, something going on there. And then, of course, uh, Two Rooms and a Werewolf. And I think those are going to be exclusive, totally unique IPs. I don't think anyone's going to have an issue with those. But uh, yeah, yeah. So I look for those in 2018. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to murdering you in an alleyway in 2018. (laughs) 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 No, that's right. We're actually working on one night, Two Rooms and a Boom. So we're pretty excited about that. All right. That's, That's awesome. Yeah. But I think... Going back to your thing about like, ah, the timing, I would never want designers to back away from a design because something similar is coming out. When I announce stuff, I will get emails and I've gotten emails, I think when I announced castles originally, I got a bunch of emails from people going, oh, I was working on a castle building game and now I can't do that. And I'm like, well, no, you, you probably can. I really doubt your castle game is going to be anything like my castle game. Plus, let's examine how bullshit that is. Castle building, that is just a vague idea that you can do so many things with. Yeah. I would want all designers to look at games and if they're inspired by a game, don't rip it off exactly. But there's so many games that are similar and that they've done things that are unique. 
And when Stone Age came out not long after Kalis, I was like, huh, that seems like they've taken this work replacement thing, um, but they did it differently. I don't know if Kalis was their inspiration or if it was Cathedral, which was the you know predecessor to the Aladdin's Dragons, which preceded Kalis as a work replacement game. Thunderstone looks like it was clearly inspired by Dominion, but at the same time, it had a bunch of other stuff going on there that really made it a wholly different feel to it. Those by themselves were actually really good games. I don't think that those other games that came first were really hurt. You know, I don't think that Dominion was hurt by Thunderstone. I don't think that Kalos was hurt by Stone Age. I think they both thrived as a result of this new thing that was opening up. I don't think that Werewolf is hurt by Two Rooms and a Boom. I actually think that now there's these different options and it encourages more people to play all these games in social deduction at conventions, whereas before it was just Werewolf. Now you're getting more and more people. They've got Secret Hitler, there's Resistance, there's the One Night Games. There's a bunch of stuff that they can play and it's a thing. And there's social deduction rooms at all these cons now instead of just werewolf rooms. And I th- think that draws in a lot more people than it would otherwise. And it's really good for Ultimate Werewolf. It's good for people who are new in that space. You want people to do that sort of thing. And I think it's very short-sighted to think that, hey, a competing game is coming out, a game that's similar is coming out, unless it's really an exact duplicate and it just polishes those edges that were rough on your game. For the most part, it's probably a good thing for your game. I couldn't agree more. In fact, Brad Telton Jr. from Level 99 Games said something to Sean and myself that I'll never forget. He said, we're not competitors. No matter what game you make and no matter what games I make, we're not competitors. The real competitor is the movies, the video games, anything that takes people away from the gaming table, away from spending time face to face with one another. That's our real competition. Everything else just helps feed our industry. Yeah. I think that's really romantic, yeah. and I think that's totally true. It's great that when they get eliminated from Werewolf, hopping over for a quick game of Two Rooms and Boom. It's a beautiful yeah. thing to see how much our games synergize. I love it. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely thrilled. I think there was a need for another large number of person social game that really doesn't exist outside of Werewolf. And Werewolf, honestly, is not for everybody. There's a lot of things. People don't like elimination. People don't like the sitting there, especially if you play the old style, where they eliminate one person the first night, which is wrong and should never be allowed, but still people do it. Boy, for people to go, there's a social deduction game that's not Werewolf because it's not for me. That's awesome, because now they're playing other things, and then maybe they will. Maybe they might not find their way after Werewolf, but they'll find their way to this other, a whole new set of games that are out there, which are awesome. Here's one of the reasons I still play Werewolf. First of all, it's a timeless game. We'll always play it. But at a convention, even when I've been hosting Two Rooms and a Boom or playing Two Rooms and a Boom, sometimes I just want to sit down and relax. Yes. And so there's this idea of just sitting around in a circle and chilling out with people and not participating. Two Rooms and a Boom's a more active game, Wait until you see Fairy Tale Betrayal, because that's more active than even Two Rooms in a Boom. Cool. Awesome. Fun. Hopefully I'll have it on demo next Origins Gen Con, because I just showed it at... Oh, you'll be at BGG Con, yeah? I will not, actually. Oh, I thought you were sending Phoebe to PAX Unplugged, and I thought you were going to BGG Con. No, well, I am not going actually to either one this year, oddly enough. We're going to have a booth at both places, but I will not be at either. This is the first year I'll be missing both of them, but I kind of need a break from that sort of thing. 
I know. Trying to have a life outside of the gaming world? What are you doing, Ted? No, 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 don't be ridiculous. That's never gonna happen. But I actually am behind on a lot of things. Speaking of Werewolf, one of those things is Ultimate Werewolf Legacy, which has been in the works now for way too long, and I just need to get my butt in gear and get that thing done, and uh, it's so easy to be distracted, and that game, unfortunately, it is so complex and so overwhelming. I actually just printed out a set of all the stuff today, and it took like six hours to get all the stuff printed and cut and ready so I can take it with me to Essen to show to uh, potential Ted, partners. Sh shut up. Are you talking about a hidden role game that has a legacy campaign style to it? Absolutely. It is so... Oh my god! So I, I, I can't believe you didn't know You're about so this. You're so much better at this than us. God, no wonder why. You didn't why. know about this? This is some... We announced this last Gen Con. 2016 Gen Con, we announced it, and I've been working on... Rob Davio and I have been working on this for... Well, I should say... Uh, Rob has been working on it, and I have just been kind of sitting around not working on it, doing other things. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. The honor and pleasure of working with Rob, who is clearly the master of that particular type of game, it's amazing. One of his best strengths is a storyteller. And, you know, the, the reason that Pandemic Legacy is good is not because of Matt Leacock, because Matt Leacock is kind of a savant as far as cooperative games. That's all he can really do. But Rob, I'm just kidding, of course, because Matt's a friend, but I like ripping on Matt whenever I can. Don't worry, I'm going to edit out all the good stuff you just said about Matt and only leave the bad, so enjoy that, Chad. I appreciate that. <laughs> but Rob has this amazing talent for storytelling and for plot points. And if you've played, have you played uh, Pandemic Legacy or Risk Legacy? Yes, sir. Yes. No plot spoilers, though. Yeah, there, there are things that you're like, oh my God, that just happened. And there's a couple of those. There's one of those that happened in Pandemic Legacy that I still... When I talked to it with my wife, Tony, about it, because we actually went through the whole thing as two players, she is still bitter and upset about now. We played it a year and a half ago, but just talking about it makes her cranky because we were so involved and it was such immersion. And when this plot point happened, it pulled the rug from out from under us and she was hurt. It's just funny because it's like one of those <laughs> gaming experiences to remember. I actually don't know if this was Rob or Matt. I'm assuming it was Rob because working with Rob now, he has provided so many fascinating things that we're doing with Ultimate Werewolf Legacy. It's going to make it so much more engaging and immersive. There are 16 games that you're going to play over the course of, uh, we've divided it into five chapters. Everything you do in one game affects the next game. What's the player count going to be? Uh, it's going to be 8 to 15. Oh my, I, this is so exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. Whew. The playtests we've done so far have people, they just can't wait. They're like, we've been kicked out of venues because people wanted to keep playing and we're there so late that they're like, no, no, we're closing up. You guys have to get out of here. We have church the next morning or whatever it is. You know, that, that's it. You're gone. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Yeah. Get out. In fact, there was one where we actually were playing at a church on a Saturday night. We played really, really late and everyone there wanted to continue and they were like, you know what? There's a park across the road. Let's just go outside. It was cold too because it's San Francisco. It was really cold. Uh, and they're like, we don't care. Let's just go out there and play. We will figure out how we'll use our phones for light so we can see what we're doing. We just want to keep going. Don't make us stop. Please, please, please. That's the sort of thing where they just, they want to find out what happens next. That's super exciting. Boy, I am very, very excited about how it's turning out. It's just that the work involved in a legacy game, hats off to Rob for being able to do this several times with several different games. I'm super excited to see Charterstone from Jamie. I'll be picking up a copy at Essen. He has an amazing track record so far, but the amount of work for a legacy game is just, it cannot be overestimated. It is just crazy to get it all right, to make it all work. That Ted, I really need to sit down and focus and get it done. Ted, I have to shut you you up because number one i'm too excited but number two we're over time oh no and we have to go 
we have to pimp yourself out. If people want to get more in touch with Bezier Games or everything that's Ted Allspock, what should they do? And they should go to BezierGames.com. They can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everywhere else at Bezier Games. Hey, you can do the same thing for Tuesday Night Games in this podcast. I'm Alan Gerding, A-L-A-N-G-E-R-Ding. You can follow me on the Facebook or on the tweets. If you want to follow Tuesday Night Games in the podcast, go to at PlayTKG on the Twitters. Or please, please, please email us with any of your comments questions, concerns, or better yet, send us some of your sweet, sweet audio for a Nave Tonight submission. I'm going to start doing those again coming soon. We're behind email at podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. And I think with that being said, Ted, if you don't have anything else to say, do you have anything else you want to get off your chest before we go? All that stuff about Phoebe, I'll hold in for now. Because you know what? She's awesome. She is actually fantastic. Too bad I'm cutting that out too, Ted. I'm only leaving in the bad stuff. Oh no, oh no! Phoebe's going to cry herself to sleep every night listening to this episode of the podcast. With that being said, this episode is... It's over. No, you son of a bitch! It's finished! You gotta say it's over. You gotta take... the pandemic legacy is good is not because of Matt Leacock because Matt Leacock is kind of a savant as far as cooperative games that's all he can really do